Thank you, worship team. Excellent singing. Take your Bibles and uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you're doing that, children, you may be dismissed at this time to go down to your class. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 will be our, our text for today. Rudyard Kipling, I don't know if, how many of you have heard of him. He was a writer from the late 1800s, early 1900s. His most well-known work is a book called The Jungle Book. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read that, but I'm sure most of you, especially those of you who have kids, saw the movie, the animated film that was made from that. But uh, Rudyard Kipling was um, a rarity in his time. See, today, if you're an author, a good author, a good writer then uh, you uh, write a book and you make a lot of money off of it. Well, back in Rudyard Kipling's time, that was, that was rare. In fact, most writers back in that day did not see success of any kind until after they uh, were gone. And they never saw it, but success was not seen until after that. And he was one that saw great success during his lifetime. In fact, one time a, a newspaper reporter came up to him and said this. He said, Mr. Kipling... I just read somewhere that someone calculated that the money you make from your writing amounts to about $100 a word. Mr. Kipling raised his eyebrow and said, really, I, I wasn't aware of that. The reporter then cynically reached into his pockets and pulled out a $100 bill and gave it to Kipling and said, here's a $100 bill, Mr. Kipling. Now give me one of your famous $100 words. Mr. Kipling thought for a moment. He looked at the $100 bill, reached out, grabbed it, folded it up nicely, stuck it in his pocket, and then said, thanks, and walked away. See, really, the word thanks is a $100 word. It's a word we probably don't use enough. It's a word that maybe we throw out unintentionally at times even, but it's a word that has great value. I heard a comment recently on the radio where they were discussing how in America today it seems as if we go straight from Halloween right into Christmas. And I believe there's some truth to that. Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving in our country? Well, the obvious answer is this. In, 19, excuse me, in 1789, President George Washington made this announcement. He said this, Congress requested to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of the Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity to peacefully to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. He continued, Therefore, now uh, I recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted to, by the people of these states to, ser to the service of that great and glorious being. Now that's why we celebrate the holiday today. But why do we give thanks? See, as believers, thanksgiving should not be a holiday. It should be something that we do all the time. But where do we get this idea? Well, in Scripture, there, uh, th there are a number of different places that talk about giving thanks or thankful. In fact, there are roughly 50 times in Scripture where the, uh, one of those phrases is used, give thanks, be thankful, something along that lines. We're going to look at one today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, and, and I want to start, I'm just going to read to you 
Uh, actually, I'm just going to start in verse 16. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us as we talk about this idea of thanks and the connection with prayer and rejoicing. Lord, that we'll be um, really serious about making this not just something we do once in a while, but about who we are. That as a Christian, this should define us. Lord, I pray that you help me as I preach this message. Uh, Lord, help me not to give my opinion, but help me to share your word. Lord, help me to be humble enough to get out of the way and just say what it is that your Holy Spirit guides for me to say. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. These three little verses are so crucial. They fall into a bigger text of verses uh, where Paul is addressing this, this, this church in Thessalonica. And he starts out at the beginning of of chapter 5, and I'm not going to read through it all, but the beginning of chapter 5, he begins to talk about the, the uh, end times. He begins to talk about the return of Christ. And, and the Bible tells us that one day Jesus Christ will return. And, and, and what does that mean? Well, it, he has been here before, we know that, and Jesus Christ came to earth as a man, and, and he, he did this to, to uh, pay the penalty of our sin. He, he came and he lived a perfect life. He was the example that none of us could keep, and he fulfilled the law which none of us could do, and yet uh, because of that, because he was perfect, God knew he was the only possible one that could pay the penalty for our sin. And so Jesus Christ came, and ultimately he came to die. But when he left, he said to his disciples, I will come again, and when I come again, I will receive you. And so Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, will come again. And so verses uh, 1 through 11 talk about Jesus Christ returning. And he says in in verse 11, look how he, he wraps up that whole section on returning. And he talks about how Jesus will come as a thief in the night. And, and, and we, we don't know when that will be, but it will catch us unaware. And he says in verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another. Because Jesus is going to return, we need to be ready. And so encourage one another. And then he says, and build one another up. Build each other up. And the process of doing that is what we've talked about throughout this year, about about growing. And as we grow together, we are to help each other to grow. And, and, he's, and he then begins to go through then in these next few verses, starting in, in verse 12, about kind of some last thoughts of how growth takes place as he's talking to this church. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, uh, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He's talking specifically here about how, uh, how the people were to interact with their, with their elders and their pastors, and he says, show respect to them because they work hard, they labor among you, uh, and they admonish you, and it's what God has given them to do, it's their responsibility, so esteem them, respect them, show them love that you ought to show. Then he goes on, and he says, be at peace among yourself. Verse 14, he says, we urge you, brothers... And then he begins to tell them how to deal with those who are not living in a way that they should. He says what? Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 
And he gives, and that's a good reminder, this is not part of my message, but it's a good reminder, not everyone needs the same thing. Okay? Not everyone should be treated the same way. And he reminds us of that, depending on where they're at, is how you treat them. And he, and he goes on, he says, verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then we come to our text for today. And in our text for today, he gives three orders or three commands Almost shotgun fashion, you know? I mean, it's like boom, 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 boom. Here they go. And, and sometimes it seems as if these are, these are distinct thoughts, right? Like, hey, do this, do this, do this. But if you look at the grammar of it, you'll realize they're not. Because if you look carefully, you will notice that this is one sentence. In fact, it's a paragraph in, in, the, in the text, the original text. It's a paragraph there. And so these are meant to be together, it's, uh, it's, it's an understanding that these commands, these directives, these admonishments go together. Spurgeon called these three commands the golden chain of Christian life. And, and, and the idea that he meant was that you cannot have one without the other, that they are, they are interconnected and they are made stronger by one another and, and, and ultimately they present uh, a, a Christian life that is beautiful. James Moffat, a theologian from the early 1900s, described these three verses as, as diamond drops that outline the Christian experience. These three verses are, are part of one of the shortest paragraphs in Scripture, and yet this tiny little passage has the ability to drastically improve our attitude and our demeanor in life. Uh, it's no accident that it appears at the end of Thessalonians. Many of Paul's books, he does this. At the very end of books, it, it's, he kind of just goes through a number of different things. We saw that even a little in Colossians, where he goes through a number of different things really quickly just to remind him. It's, it's as if Paul's writing this letter and he's running out of paper, so he's trying to get in the last little few things, and he's saying to the, them these three things. But uh, before we look at these diamond drops, before we look at this golden chain, I, I, I want to just remind you of a few fundamental truths. And, and I have these in your notes there. You can follow along. These aren't from the text, but I think these are good truths to remember uh, as, we, as we begin talking about the idea of rejoicing and praying and give thanks. The truth is, is as a believer, you cannot do these three things if you don't have these four fundamental truths that I want to go through just quickly. So let's talk about them. The first one is is rather simple, and that is God is a living being. You must believe that in order to be able to rejoice, pray, and give thanks, you must believe that God is alive, that God is, is a living being. Uh, notice the verse there in Hebrews. He said, Without faith is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must what? Believe that he exists. In order to uh, rejoice and pray and give thanks, you must believe that God exists. But secondly, you must believe not only that he exists, because some people believe it exists, but they struggle with this second idea, is that we believe that God, we must believe that God is near to us. See, there's people that say, yeah, I know God exists, but he, he, he doesn't really interfere with the, the affairs of man. He's, he's a distant God. He's, he's way out there in the, in the universe, and, and uh, he looks at us, but he doesn't interact with us. But we see that the Bible in numerous places, we see in this passage, is the Lord is near to all who call on him. The Lord is near. That's not a statement of distance. That's a statement of proximity, that God is biased. When you're going through those hard times, when you're, when you're struggling, God is right there. This must be a foundational truth that you believe in order to be able to, to, to uh, uh, do these commands that we're going to look at. Thirdly, 
we must believe that God has absolute control over all things. Not just that God is alive, not just that God is near us. I mean, it's one thing, you know, uh, um, I have people near me that can't do to anything like God can do. So it's not just the nearness of it, but that God has the ability to do all things. Jesus said, hey, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. See, we, we worship a God who is not only alive, he's near us, but he can do something about the things that we struggle with. But then finally, I think we need to, a foundational truth that we need to believe is we need to believe that God is actually our loving Father who cares about you, who is concerned about you. Again, it's not just that he's alive, it's not just that he's biased, it's not just that he can do something, but he actually cares. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. If you are God's child, if you have, as we talked about just a few minutes ago, you believe that Jesus Christ came as the perfect sacrifice for our sin and you have placed your faith in him, the Bible tells us that he is your heavenly father and so he actually cares about you. So with the basis of these fundamental truths, I want to look at these three commands in this passage. And they're really simple, really simple. But I think they're important for us to discuss. The first one is this. Christians are commanded by God to always rejoice. We need to define a little bit here. The first word that we look at here is rejoice. It means to be filled with joy, to... to, to uh, to exude joy in, in everything that we do. This word is in, a, in the present tense, meaning that as believers, we should be continually in a state of happiness. I, I was thinking about a way to illustrate this, and I, I read a, a, a while ago about this man who, who it was interesting. It was, it, it was said that he smelled good wherever he went and whatever he was doing. In fact, they said, people around him said his skin seemed to exude a pleasant fragrance. See, here's the thing. This guy lived in a perfume factory. He, he, uh, he breathed in the aromas every day. It was said that it filtered through his clothing, it penetrated his skin, even his lungs. He became almost like a walking perfume store. And this is the idea of rejoicing always that you rejoice in what God has done in and through you. You rejoice constantly, so, so much so that, that, that it penetrates into your life and, and, and it exudes out, and, and it's not something that you can control, really. I mean, it's just something about who you are because of your relationship with God. And it just naturally comes out. The church in Thessalonica that Paul was writing to didn't have a lot of ease. Things were not easy. Actually, take your Bibles. Uh, uh, I was just going to mention this, but I want to read it. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is uh, Paul is traveling on his missionary journey, and uh, he is, him and uh, uh, Silas are going around and, and they're traveling for, to, from city to city and, and as, as was the normal practice, Paul and Silas, they would come into a city 
And the first thing that they would do is they would go to the synagogue and they would begin to teach. And, and, and Acts chapter 17 tells us that. So they come to Thessalonica where there is a synagogue of the Jews. Verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them for the Scriptures. So here's what he does. He goes in for three weeks. He comes and he sits and he teaches and he explains. See, they knew the law, but they didn't know about Jesus Christ. And so we would explain about the law and how that interacts with Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. And it says there in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now look how they responded. This is a very common response when Paul would go into a city. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Great, as did many of the devoted Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So this, the, you know, the Jews, some of them it says, the Greeks, many of them, the leading ladies also. And, and then verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. I mean, just picture that for a moment. These Jews, they got angry. And instead of, you know, just kind of like, you know, fuming about it, the Bible tells us, in a sense, they begin to assemble a riot. And they get all these other people stirred up and, and stirred up. And so they go to Jason's house where they expect to find Paul and Silas. And, and they go in and it tells us there, they're seeking to find them. And when they, verse 6, when they could not find them, what they do? Well, they did the next best thing. They grabbed Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And this guy, Jason, has received them. And they act against, are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. You see, this is what the people of Thessalonica, the believers, these young believers who are, who are turning to Christ, this is what they are living under. But it doesn't end there. To go back to 1 Thessalonians, I want you to look at just a a few verses where Paul addresses this. Now Paul's writing this later, this uh, this letter later on. And look what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul is speaking to this church now who was who who obviously there was a lot of problems there. Verse 6, he says, "And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. That's what we just read about, right? They, they, as they were first hearing the word from Paul and Silas, it wasn't an easy thing. They were facing much affliction. I mean, they were, they were being ridiculed by their neighbors. They were, uh, it was not a good thing. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, But though, though we had already suffered and been uh, shamefully treated by Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our Lord to declare to you the gospel of the Lord in the midst of much conflict. Again, he says, hey, we, we declared to you God, but it wasn't easy. It was in the middle of a lot of conflict. But continue on. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. And this is where he transitions. This is not just about what, what Paul went through or went, went through when Paul was there. Look what it says in verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your countrymen 
as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove them out and displeased uh, God and opposed all mankind. They suffered. The Bible doesn't tell what it is, but they suffered. Now here's the amazing thing about this, all the persecution they faced. They never gave up. They never gave up. Look back at chapter 1 again. Look what he says in verse 7 and 8. I read verse 6 where it says that you were imitators and you received the word in much affliction. Look what it says in verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Nicaea. And not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Nicaea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that, you, that we need not say anything. I mean, just imagine with me, if you will, what's going on here, okay? So they, Paul comes in, preaches, there's, there's affliction, there's persecution. Paul leaves, the affliction and a persecution continues. But the people are so serious about the relationship of God, so serious about shedding, sharing the gospel, that they continue to do it. So much so that it says that, that their testimony went not only in, uh, in Thessalonica, but it went to Macedonia and at Chai, and it went all over. And so much so that Paul says, I don't, we don't even need to go there now because you have been such an example and you have been such a testimony. Here's the thing. Sadness and sorrow impacts us in life. Every one of us faces problems. Every one of us faces trials. Tears will come. Some of you will shed tears and, and, and it hurts. Disaster strikes. But what Paul is saying, going back to chapter 5 and verse 16, what Paul is saying is this, that by and large, the default attitude of the believer should be joy. The natural setting. Those of you that are, are techie people and you, you, know, you deal with computers or, or things like that, if you have a computer and, and you're having a problem with it, this just recently happened with my computer, is having a problem with it. Uh, took it to, well, first I took it to Pastor Nate because you know, he knows way more than I do and, and he didn't know what to do. And so I took it to uh, the Apple store and, and you know what they finally said to me? They said, restore it to its factory settings. Set it to default. And it'll work. And lo and behold, it did. But you know what should be your factory settings as a Christian? Joy. Rejoicing. It should be that your, your natural setting of a Christ-like person is, is joy. But notice the command does not just say rejoice. The command says rejoice always. Always. Now that's a simple little word, but it has a huge impact on this, on this phrase. We're to rejoice in, in everything at all times. But why? Because, because the believer's joy, here's the thing, the believer's joy does not originate from happy circumstances. But a believer's joy supernaturally comes independent of circumstances and dependent on Christ. Our example, as, as it says in Hebrews, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. See, your joy is not, as a Christian is not because life is good. Because the Bible tells us that we as Christians will face affliction and tribulation and trials and, 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 and struggles, and we will face those things. And so your joy is not because life is good. Your joy is because, because of God 
who is good, is your life. And so when Paul says rejoice always, he's not talking about in your circumstances. See, rejoicing in one's circumstances can happen, but ultimately it should be in God and his promises. Because here's the truth. People around you, including yourself, people around you can be difficult, they can be faint-hearted, they can be weak, they can be antagonistic, they can be nasty. But we as believers in Christ have our roots planted elsewhere and our dependence planted elsewhere. And that's the word of God and our relationship with God. And so therefore that should change and transform your response in adverse situations. But what's the key to rejoicing? How, how, How do we do that? Well, I think the answer to that comes in the next verse. When, when he says in the next verse, he says, rejoice always, and then he says, pray without ceasing. And that leads us to the second one. Christians are commanded by God to continually pray. I love how Charles Spurgeon takes these two the different ones and combines them. So I'm going to read this. This is a little longer paragraph, but I want you to hear it because I think it's, it's a beautiful connecting point between the rejoicing and the praying. The position of this verse is very strong. Observe what it follows. It comes immediately after the precept, rejoice evermore, as if the command that had somewhat staggered the reader and asked him, how can I always rejoice? And therefore the apostle responds, always pray. The more praying, the more rejoicing. Prayer gives channel to to pent-up sorrows of the soul. They flow away. And in their stead streams a sacred delight of the heart. At the same time, the more rejoicing, the more praying. When the heart is in a quiet condition and full of the joy of the Lord, then we will also pray as an avenue of worship to our God. The Greek word used here for prayer is, is, a, is a cool one. It's, it's actually a combination of two words. The, the first one means that we face a direction. The second one there means that we speak out loud. In other words, the core idea of this word prayer here is that we turn our entire attention towards God and we speak to him. When he says here, rejoice, and then he says pray, it's the idea that it carries with us the idea, not just a simple prayer, but it carries with us the idea that our whole life is actually before God. God, I place my entire life in front of you. But what does it mean to pray without ceasing? You know, that question's been, been bounced around before. Is, what, what, what is he talking about? There are a number of ways that we could view that. Uh, does he mean that we need to pray to the neglect of everything else? Does he mean we need to give up our food and, and sleep and, and relationship with others to pray? Well, no. Although God may at times call you to do that, there, there, it's biblical that at times maybe God is calling you to, to fast for the purpose of prayer or, or to lose a little sleep for the purpose of prayer or maybe even to pull yourself away from social situations for the purpose of prayer. But that is not the idea of pray without ceasing. It, it, it may mean that we pray every moment, every second that we get, we pray. And that, that's not wrong either, but I, I, I don't think that's the best way. I heard, heard someone explain it this way, and I'm going to uh, make it personal. It could be very similar to the idea if I say, I love my wife constantly. Now, 
Maybe you think this is true, but it's not. It's, this does, when I say I love my wife constantly, it doesn't mean that we're sitting at home all the time, you know, I'm looking into her eyes and saying, you are so beautiful, I love you so much, and we're doing that all the time. No, it's not. Okay, I have to go to work. Okay, I have to have meetings. I have to take my kids places. I have things I have to do, and so we're not together all the time, but no matter how much activity I do, no matter how much I go about my day, no matter what takes place, it never lessens my love for my wife. It's a part of who I am. It impacts all that I do. And our love for God and our prayer for God is the same. Yes, I have to go about my day. Yes, I have to have meetings. Yes, I have to do uh, uh, preparation for a sermon. Yes, I have to go to a doctor appointment. Yes, I have to do this. But throughout my day, it should never lessen my desire to be in the presence of God. It should never lessen my desire. It should never stop. And every moment I get, it should be, God, I come before you. Man, I've missed it. We haven't had time together today, and I want to be with you. You know, yesterday I uh, had to take my son to a basketball game. We were gone all day, and when I came home, it was, and, and my wife was somewhere, and she came home, and it was like, man, I haven't seen you all day. I'm so glad to see you. But our relationship with God should be even more than that. That's pray without ceasing. It's that no matter what we do in life, every aspect of our life is saying, God, it just fills me. John Piper said it this way. I I love the way he puts it. He says that uh, unceasing prayer implies three things. First of all, it implies a spirit of dependence on God, meaning that we need God in everything we do. If you're praying without ceasing, it's, it's an acknowledgement that I cannot get through today without God. Second thing, it implies that we pray repeatedly and often. If, if the only time you pray is at a meal, you're not praying unceasingly. If, if you throw out a, a simple one prayer in the morning and you go, okay, I'm good for the day, you're not praying without ceasing. It's continual. But thirdly, and I like this, he says this, that unceasing prayer implies that we never give up on prayer. And I think this is one that gets lost on us. In fact, I, maybe I'm alone on this, but I know there has been times when, when I give up on prayer. And I don't mean I give up on prayer as a whole, as a concept, but I, I give up on prayer on, on maybe a certain area. You know, you pray about a certain thing over and over and over again, and you keep coming to God, and there comes a point where you go, I've prayed that one out. And I believe what it implies here is we never give up. You know, and, and Jesus understood that. And Luke, he, 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 uh, he told them a parable, and it says here, he explained, and he says he told them to, in the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. And sometimes I know that the, the experience of life can cause us to lose hope, to lose heart. But God says don't give up. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. But thirdly, he says this, Christians are commanded by God to give thanks in everything. The passage there says, give thanks in all circumstances. I quoted uh, Spurgeon earlier talking about the connection between uh, rejoice and prayer. I want to continue his quote as we connect it to uh, giving thanks. He says this, observe, however, what immediately follows in everything give thanks. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. When we joy in God for what we have and believingly pray to him for more, then our souls thank him when he does what he does. 
And these three texts are companions. As, as I said earlier, they're, they're the golden chain. They're interconnected, and they cannot be taken apart. And really, this, uh, this phrase, is the, this the last verse here, is the climax of this message. Our, our rejoicing and our praying will lead to our thankfulness. If you are rejoicing in what God has done in, in all things, and if you are praying for God to continue to work in, uh, in every circumstance, then you are going to be the one who gives thanks when it happens. But what does it mean to give thanks? Uh, the, the words used here, this, this give thanks, give us, an, it's, an, it's an obligation of being thankful. It's a, it's a requirement. Now, Thursday, many of you will gather with your family. Okay? You'll sit around a table and you'll, you'll have all of your loved ones, or at least, you know, most people that you like somewhat, you know, depending on the family situation. But you'll have, you'll have your loved ones there, and you'll sit at the table, and all the food will be on the table. And let's be honest, there will be five times more, more food there than the amount of people, okay? Uh, you could feed more, five times the amount of people the amount of food you have there. And so, but we sit around, we, we eat, okay? And then, and then, you know, we finish eating, and, and maybe you go back and sit down and watch more football, or if you're not a football family, you play games or you talk or maybe you watch a movie or something and you just have family time. But somewhere along the way, you're sitting at the table about ready to eat and dad or mom or whoever it is, grandma and grandpa, looks and says, all right, let's go around and say what we're thankful for. And you know what? It's pretty easy then, isn't it? Well, I'm thankful for food. I'm thankful that I'm in a warm house right now, that our house has heat I'm thankful that I can be with my family that, for the most part, I love. I'm thankful that I can relax. But remember, when Paul was writing this letter, these people were not sitting in easy times having a Thanksgiving meal around the table and eating and watching football. They were having trials. If you were to go to Paul and say, Paul, are you saying that we should thank God every time everything happens in this world, no matter how evil or no matter how against God it is. Paul would probably be like, that's a pretty foolish question. I mean, notice all that Paul went through. I know that's small up there, but I think you can read it. Notice all that Paul went through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship. And not for one moment, not for one moment did Paul welcome those things. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't rejoice in God and what God did through them, but not for one moment did he rejoice. See, he suffered badly and at times nearly died. And none of those things were good. The command to give thanks in in all circumstances doesn't require us doing some crazy mental uh, game where we have to believe everything that has happened in this world is actually good. But there is a never time, a never a time when we can't be thankful. You say, what do you mean by that? 
See, we can give thanks in all circumstances, number one, because we know that in those circumstances, God is with us. I love the story with Paul and Silas again when they're in Philippi and, and they preach the gospel and like the other locations, they are, uh, they are mistreated for it and they're, they're, they're sent to prison and, and they're in prison. The Bible tells us they're in, in chains. They're in prison and what do they begin doing? Do you think they sat there and went, I am so thankful I'm in chains. This is the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. Okay, this was not an American prison. It was probably a really bad place. It was probably damp. It was dark. There was probably little critters running all over the place. And here they are in chains, and they begin to sing praises to God. See, they knew something. They knew that they were not abandoned by God. They knew God was there with them. They knew they weren't alone, but they also knew that God could do anything he wanted through these horrible circumstances. And he did. The Bible tells us they're singing and suddenly this earthquake happens and, and, you know, crazy earthquake, doors fly open, you know, the things don't crumble on top of them, doors fly open, chains pop off, but they don't leave, they stay. And you know the story, that through that, the jailer and his entire family came to understand the gospel and receive Jesus. See, Paul and Silas knew something. They knew that God was with them, but they also knew that, that their circumstances could be used for God's glory. And see, on our, on our earthly level, we look at our, the things around us and, and the events of our lives, and we really can't see all the time how God is bringing it together and how God is going to use those and how God is going to shape us and shape, shape our circumstances for his glory. But from a God perspective, it makes sense. So we might not be thankful for the pain. We might not be thankful for the, 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 the hurt of the trial, but we can be thankful for what is going to happen through the pain, what God is going to do. And here, when Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, then he concludes with this phrase, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's a beautiful thing. This is the will of God. And I think uh, we have to look at this the right way. It's, it's not one of these thoughts. It's not, okay, life is bad, but you're required to rejoice, pray, and give thanks, and just do it because it's what God wants you to do. It's his will. It's not that sort of thing. This is the idea that I see it as. It's the sort of thing like this. It's God's will that you do these things, and so he'll enable you. He'll strengthen you. He'll encourage you when it doesn't feel like you can do it anymore. He will lift you up. It, it, it isn't easy to rejoice always. It isn't easy to pray without ceasing. It isn't easy to give thanks in all circumstances, but we can do it. Why? Because it's the will of God for our life. And so since it's his will, he enables us to do it. He empowers us. So let me ask you a question as we close. Which of those three are you struggling with the most? I know as I was going through this message this week, God was speaking to my heart. In areas where, man, I, 
and, and sometimes I, 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 I revealed this to my family this week, sometimes I feel like I've, I, I, I let my joy slip away. And we've got to be careful that we don't. And we have to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks. And when we do that, we bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are truly grateful for this reminder. Lord, you have told us that this life is not easy. Yet in, in the midst of a hard and troubling life, in the midst of a life where, where you tell us that since the world rejected you, they're going to reject us, in the midst of a world where we still have our sin nature tugging and pulling and, and trying to get us to fall, you tell us to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. So Lord, I pray that for us this week, that Thanksgiving will not just be some easy thing we do around a table, but it'll, it'll like the man who smelled like perfume, it'll, it'll exude out of our life. It'll penetrate from our life because it's in our heart. Lord, if there's any here that they don't know you, Lord, there's no way that they can fully rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And I pray that you will convict them of that. And for, for Christians, Lord, if there's some here that have lost one of those three things or maybe all of them, I pray that you help them to repent and turn to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.